Podcast Time Out for Mental Health is where we speak to sports figures, mental health experts, and leadership gurus about their experiences as it relates to mental health issues associated with depression, masculinity, and suicide. These sensitive topics are often swept under the rug, as detailed in my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Getting a handle on a man's masculinity will improve relationships, both personally and in the workplace. Everyone needs some support to ask for help when they feel off or a bit disoriented and foggy and don't know what is really going on with them. If they do not seek help, their behavior can turn dangerous, including alcoholism, drug and pill addiction, anger, fighting, violence, and in some cases, death by suicide. On Time Out for Mental Health, we want to uncover these issues so men and women can live a happy and healthy life, even though they do suffer from mental health issues. Our guest today is Dwayne France. Dwayne is a retired Army non-commissioned officer. During his military service, he participated in five combat and operational deployments. Now, working as a mental health therapist, he finds that his unique blend of experiences and training have led him to be a successful mentor, advocate, and counselor to an underdeserved population, underserved population in our country, his fellow veterans. We're honored that Dwayne has shared some of his time today with us. How are you doing today, Dwayne? I'm doing well, Tim. Thanks. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Feeling good, even though the energy feels like it's crazy today. <laughs> such certainly a, is. Such is life. First, before we begin, I, I just want to thank you for your service and everything that you've done and you're doing to for our country. Uh, it, it, it's uh, very admirable and it's much appreciated. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I think a lot of veterans um, may not know how to respond to that. Thank you for your service, right? Um, it definitely, I, I, I know that it's heartfelt coming from you. Uh, and really, on behalf of other veterans, we appreciate it when others recognize uh, the sacrifice that it takes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and especially these days, it really hits home. I mean, I know when I was younger, um, I was not as appreciative as I am today. And maybe that's because things were maybe a little calmer, but uh, I, think, I think it hits home because things are happening in, in our country that are very disturbing. And, and we're seeing lives taken that are totally unnecessary. And, and it's just, for me, it's too much. And that's why I got involved in being a mental health advocate because I had many friends who I would sit down with on a Wednesday or Thursday and have a coffee. And then Monday, I'd get a call about um, from from a friend saying, "Hey, did you hear about Billy? He hung himself on Sunday, mm-hmm. and that just like totally eats at me." And and when I did the research to find out why so many people, especially men, 
have mental health issues and don't get help, you know, just tore me apart and I wanted to, to help that situation in the world. So, um, let me read you a couple quotes that I picked up from you. I truly believe that the numerous difficulties that some veterans experience, including unemployment, homelessness, and transitioning difficulties, are all related to their mental health in some form or fashion. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that um, in, in really kind of bringing that out. A lot of times when we talk about mental health, people think about psychological diagnoses, right? You know, in, in, in that quote, people can read, it's all about PTSD or it's all about TBI, but that's not, that's not the case. It has to do with our mental wellness, where our mindset is at. Um, after I retired, I worked for a period of time for a homeless veterans program uh, as a program director. Um, and we, I saw that we could help these veterans get everything. We can get them housed. We can get them a job. We can get them, you know, food. We can get them transportation. Um, but really, unless we address the underlying issues of why they became homeless or why their relationship disintegrated or why these things are happening until we could get to the root cause of all of those things, um, then we weren't really doing as much as we possibly could. And so just like anything else, uh, it is about mindset. It's about um, a healthy mindset, mental wellness, emotional wellness, psychological wellness. Um, and, and I think that really the way that we think and see the world, think about and see the world um, is really a cause of both our success and maybe some of the failures we experience. I agree. I agree. And here's one other quote. It is my mission to ensure veteran mental health does not go unnoticed in our country. What, what, what do you mean by that? Well, and, you know, you mentioned before, thank you for your service. A lot of people, you know, respect those who served and, and have certain maybe concepts um, of, about some of those who served. Um, but really this topic of psychological health, mental wellness, whatever you want to describe, um, it, it, it hadn't often been talked about, even early on in my military career. It is being talked about more. And, and you reference sort of how the energy is these days. Really, I think the, the pandemic has really highlighted the stress that the emotional stress, the psychological stress that a lot of people are under. Um, and so for me, it's really trying to bring this previously taboo subject, psychological health, mental wellness, um, and, and bring it to both the military population. Because I'm talking to my military service brothers and sisters um, to say, yeah, we think about physical fitness. Uh, we think even about financial fitness, but how much do we really pay attention to our psychological health? Uh, and we need to have that as part of the conversation as we're talking about getting veterans jobs and housed and, and, and you know, helping them out in these other areas. Absolutely. Uh, you've participated in five combat and operational deployments. Can you tell us what that entails? Yeah, so um, in, in for maybe those who hadn't served in the military, we have a lot of different deployments. Um, uh, I actually served overseas. I was stationed overseas in Germany uh, for six years out of my two separate tours of six years out of my 22-year career. And my mom thinks those were deployments, like I was deployed. And, and not Exactly. Right. You know, service members can be stationed overseas without actually going on what's called a deployment. 
so uh, the difference between combat and operational deployment. So my first deployment was in the mid nineties uh, to Bosnia, right after the Dayton peace accords were signed in the fall of 94. Um, we, the U S army and, and, and coalition forces um, went into Bosnia and uh, Serbia, Croatia, to really, you know, make sure that those peace accords were stabilized uh, and enforced them. Um, and, and so, you know, I, that's a deployment. That was my first deployment, obviously, um, as challenging as that can be. But I was a single soldier at that point. I, I often say one of the hardest things about that deployment is I had to sleep on a cot for a year. Yes, I was separated my, from my family, but I was already stationed in Germany, um, you know, Maybe, you know, some folks threw rocks at us. One guy thought that, you know, he got shot at, but not really. So Bosnia really wasn't, it, it was a hazardous duty deployment, but it wasn't necessarily a combat deployment. Um, then I was in Germany again. And so after, um, after my tour in Germany, I went to Fort Bragg and I served in the 82nd Airborne Division for several years. Uh, then my family, I met my wife and, and we got married and started our family. We went back to Germany. I was actually in Germany for 9-11. So for me, my memories of 9-11 are actually in the afternoon as opposed to many who, who may, may remember it as in that morning. And then after that, I decided, of course, had been in the Army for 10 years at that point and wanted to train to go to war. Uh, the Army, in its infinite wisdom, sent me to recruiting duty instead. So it's sort of like when the Super Bowl kicks off and you get sent to the front office for a bit. Um, so then uh, in 2006, um, my family and I came here to Fort Carson, um, and we started on the Grand World Tour. So I did a 15-month tour in Iraq um, during 2006. 2006, 2007, there, there are different periods in the, the conflict in Iraq. Um, this was the beginning of the surge, right? So this is when um, uh, a lot more service members were there. So I did a 15-month tour in Iraq. Um, we were specifically there in Baghdad. Um, and then uh, right after that, my unit went to Afghanistan. So I did a 12-month tour in Afghanistan. Um, again, both of those were combat deployments. Um, shortly after I came back from my tour in Afghanistan, I went back to Afghanistan. I, I left Afghanistan in July and I was back in Afghanistan the next February. Um, again, a different type of deployment. It was to a combat zone, but I was actually working with the Afghan Ministry of Defense, um, where we were training and evaluating Afghan National Army soldiers. Um, it spent about nine months there. Uh, then I came back to Fort Carson thinking that I was going to ride off into the sunset in the army again in its infinite wisdom wanted me to jump out of airplanes again. So uh, I spent uh, jumping out of airplanes when you're 39 is a lot different than jumping out of airplanes when you're 25. Um, but, uh, but then, and, and really, I feel like it went out on the top of my career. I served with the 10th Special Forces Group uh, in a support capacity uh, and went to North Africa with them. So again, uh, that was more of a training deployment and operational deployment. So we talk about these five combat and operational deployments. Um, often when, and I, I had this conversation with a, a colleague of mine, she was a psychologist. She said, well, how many times have you been deployed? I said, oh, I've been deployed five times. She said, well, of course you have PTSD. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Just because I have five combat uh, or five deployments 
Uh, my second deployment in Afghanistan was not a hard deployment at all. The latrine was in the same building I slept in, right? It was more of a nine to five job. And so really my most uh, uh, significant deployments were my, my uh, first one to Iraq and or my one to Iraq and my first one to Afghanistan. Uh, those were the ones where we were in physical danger. Those were the ones in which we were in combat, you know, being shot at and shooting and things like that. Um, and so really that's an example of what made people say, oh, wow, five deployments. Um, well, yes, but only two of them, I think, were really significant psychologically. Great. All right. I, I want to drill down on that and kind of see a bigger picture of your story as to how you got here today. You know, were you traumatized during any of these missions? And when did you realize that you wanted to become a leader in mental health for veterans? You know, I, I think that, um, you know, in, and you can have little T traumas, right? You know, just really bad days. And then, of course, you have the big T traumas. Um, uh, yes, there were times in which I was in physical danger. Um, you know, we often have these, uh, you know, times I almost died kind of things. Um, I think where I was in Iraq, I didn't recognize that it was traumatic at the time. It was sort of retroactively traumatic looking back on it. And it was sort of like walking away from a car accident saying, holy crap, that was pretty bad, but not knowing how bad it was when you're in the middle of it. But really it was in Iraq when I decided what I wanted to be when I grew up, you know, before I, I, um, at that point, I always saw myself as, you know, maybe a, um, a high school teacher, English or history. You know, when I was, uh, was I was in high school, we had a Vietnam veteran that we knew that if we got him talking about Vietnam, we wouldn't get any homework. Right. And I always saw myself as sort of that guy. Um, but then in Iraq, I started seeing, understanding what the psychological impact of what we were doing was going to be in the long term. Um, some of this is my father and three of his brothers were Vietnam veterans. Um, I did not grow up in a military lifestyle. So my father had been in Vietnam, been in the army, got out of the army before I was born. So really I was the son of a veteran, not the son of a service member, but I saw the impact of Vietnam. I experienced the impact as a child and, and nephew of a Vietnam veteran. Uh, substance use, broken families, um, really a lot of the challenges um, that, that, that kind of went along in my life. Um, I experienced that. I brought that into the military. And then I started seeing these things that, um, for example, we had a young, one of our missions in Iraq was to secure vehicles and equipment that had been damaged in battle. Um, and uh, we actually had a young man who was 18 years old, outstanding young man, um, more than halfway through the deployment, he had seen more dead bodies that he had years on this earth. Um, and, and that takes a psychological toll on an 18 year old young man or woman. And, and so that's when I started to realize that there was going to be a need. I had had an interest in psychology um, and, and then returning from that deployment, it was a 15-month deployment, so for current era veterans, um, those are the, the longest deployments that, that we've had. Uh, and then coming back from that deployment, um, even at that time, and, and definitely later, we had these things called reintegration briefings where um, they would kind of bring everybody in a room and tell you, you know, don't kick the dog, don't throw stuff at the neighbors, and don't, you know, just, you know, don't be a jerk. Um, but during one of these briefings, one of the, the, um, the leaders there, uh, she had been, and she was a retired Air Force major, and now she was a clinical mental health professional. 
Um, and just randomly out of the blue, and I talked to her about this later, but randomly out of the blue, she said, oh, by the way, if anybody is interested in psychology, consider a career in the mental health field because there's not enough combat veterans in the space. Uh, so that was sort of a stone that dropped into my mind. At the same time, um, my community here in Colorado Springs was developing a veterans court. So I saw these veterans who were justice involved. And I was like, you know what? Those veterans are going to need somebody who understands sort of what it was like. And that was really my journey to, um, I started a bachelor's degree. I, I went on and got my master's degree in clinical mental health counseling and another one in, in business administration. Um, but really that experience in Iraq that was built upon by my experience as the son of a combat veteran um, and then anticipating what it would be. That's really kind of what put me on the path of wanting to be a mental health counselor for my fellow service members and veterans. Awesome. And let me ask you about your style. What, how would you characterize the style that you use? Is there a central message that you try to get across? And, and what, What's the most challenging aspect of what you do? Well, I, I think uh, when it comes to style, um, I would think that I'm probably a little bit more. Um, it, it, my my focus is really on I have the lived experience of being in the military, uh, and then taking that clinical expertise and getting that clinical training to be able to support that. So, really, I, I, I would say that's my style. Other people may say, say my style is more like a bull in a china shop, but, um, but really the message is the, the idea that our, our psychological health needs to be as much of a focus as our physical health or, or these other areas. And when I talk psychological health, I don't necessarily, again, refer to these psychological diagnoses of major depressive disorder or substance use disorder. I'm talking about the need to find meaning and purpose in our lives after the military. I'm talking about how do we get our needs met? How do we ensure that our relationships are secure, right? So sort of that's really my, my main message is we need to pay attention to these wellness aspects, these sort of internal aspects of our lives as much as we need to do um, to make sure the bills are paid. And in all these experiences, uh, is there any, any incident or time where you felt the most gratification for the things that you were doing? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, again, it's sort of that you know, you, you have little points of gratification and then you have times where sort of the universe is just saying, you know, yeah, you're supposed to be where you are, right? You know, that, that feeling that you have. I, I think when I'm working with a veteran, the thing that satisfies me most, and, and I call it, you know, the dawning of awareness, you can see it in somebody's eyes whenever they made a realization about, um, you know, maybe something they hadn't considered before. Um, it's like a, a particular look in their eye um, that you can tell that they just made a connection that they hadn't made before. Um, and, and being able to, I, I don't do that. I, I often say that as a therapist, uh, I'm not an answering machine, right? You know, you can type a question into Google and get an answer. Um, I'm more of a mirror in which I reflect back to the individual, what I'm hearing from them, but I'm also reflecting all of the other veterans that I see in my clinical training experience. And so through using that reflection, the help of veteran, and, and I work nearly exclusively with veteran and some military spouses, but helping a veteran understand why they're doing the things that they're doing and how they got to the place where they're at. Um, that's really satisfying for me. Great. And 
you know, this is, it's gotta be, you've gone through a lot of stress. <laughs> um, did you ever get down on yourself and feel that the effort at this level was just too challenging for you and you felt overwhelmed? You mean like last Thursday? I mean, and, and really, this is the, it, I mean, I am, uh, it's so in the military, I was not a mental health professional. I was a truck driver, right? And, and I joined the military in the early 90s um, as a truck driver for a number of different reasons. Mainly, the first one, uh, biggest one, I think, was that it was the job that got me out of my father's basement the quickest. Um, and so, um, you know, college really wasn't my thing. And it wasn't until I'd been in the army for 15 years that I decided that I wanted to be this thing. So, um, you know, is, there are some times when, when I, as a therapist, sort of that um, imposter syndrome kicks in and you're sort of like, you know, who am I? I'm just a dumb old trucker from Missouri who all of a sudden I'm sitting in here and I'm, I'm talking about this. And, and so I, I think that there is a lot of imposter syndrome um, but also just the, the, the doubt in the effort of the work that I'm doing, the therapy work, the clinical work that I do is just really a portion of it. Um, I'm also involved, as you said, in sort of the messaging to the wider community. I'm involved in legislative advocacy. Um, I'm involved in things at the, the federal, state, local level. Um, so yeah, there have been times, I, I recall the first time I went to the Colorado State Capitol to testify before a, um, a committee on a particular bill. Uh, and I'm sitting there in my, my brand new suit. I'd probably been out of the army for about a year. And I'm like, you know, what the heck am I doing here, right? I kept expecting somebody to come up and tap me on my shoulder and say, sir, are you really supposed to be here? Um, I, I think for me, um, I, I, I live in a, maybe a, a sense of constant doubt of, of is this worth it or is this able to, but I, I, I have a cycle of about once every eight to 10 days, I'll go through this of, of you know, forget it, I'm just going to, uh, you know, cut it all out and I'm not going to do it. But I recognize that. And in the past, it's, I've recognized that when I start to think about that, that means something good's about to happen. So I need to stick through it. I need to persevere. Um, sort of the way I describe it is uh, I, I tend to, you know, just stand against the wall, bashing my head up against the bricks until somebody comes up and asks me, hey, why are you banging your head against the wall? Then I get to tell them and then they go away and I go back to banging my head against the wall. Um, and, and I think that over the years uh, that has definitely um, made a difference. Of course, there are more people that are interested in this subject. Um, but Doubt is a constant thing. Overcoming doubt is what is really going to make a difference. Okay, so you're in this doubt. You're banging your head against the wall, or so it feels. It's obviously affecting your feelings and emotions. How do you deal with that? Do you ever ask for help? Or do you just try and figure things out on your own? You know, this is one of the big things that, um, and, and I tell my clients, you know, a, a therapist in many ways, and especially in this situation, a therapist needs a therapist. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have stuff that happened in my childhood. I have stuff, obviously, you know, the way I describe uh, is sort of the, the deployments is you don't go through this without a couple dents in the fender, in, in some major dents in the fender. Um, so um, I, I think, you know, and I hadn't reached out for um, clinical help 
necessarily, I would say, when I was in the military. Some of that is because I was sort of in the clinical training. I was in my, my bachelor's and then my master's in psychology. Um, I did have some mentors. Um, uh, there were a couple of very difficult times in my first Afghanistan deployment where I, I connected very closely with the chaplain. Um, and, and I also worked very closely in a professional sense with our battalion um, uh, uh, psychologist, who she and I are still friends to this day. Uh, but when I got out of the military, you know, I, I found that I was trying to be busy and I was trying to fill up my time and the military left this big space. Um, and, and it was probably about a year afterwards where I decided, you know what, I, I need to go uh, seek therapy myself. I, I need to go to counseling. Um, uh, there have been times where I've done that more or less, uh, depending on what's going on. Uh, we lost my father to natural causes in 2017. Um, and so at that point, um, in a number of different situations, I was like, you know, reached out to my therapist said, Hey, can we, you know, can we meet, can we connect? And so I, I've never been one to, um, you know, give the advice, but not follow the advice. Um, and, and there's even been times where for a long time, I actually said, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to do the therapy piece. I'm not going to do the medication. I should be strong enough to handle this, but there was some, uh, situations that occurred, um, even later in that year in 2017, um, after we lost my father that I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to take that step. And so, uh, I started working with a, a medication provider, um, and, and was on some, uh, antidepressants. Um, and all at the same time, I'm still a clinical mental health provider myself. I'm still working on uh, these national, state, and local efforts. Um, and, and again, so there's been times where I have been more engaged in therapy when I needed to, less engaged in therapy when I needed to, um, a different kind of, of uh, uh, resources when it comes to um, you know, medication management, where now that has sort of uh, uh, gone away. So it, it's all of these different things is... Um, you know, who does the healer go to to be healed? And I've never shied away from um, really addressing those needs because I've seen what not addressing those things can do. Yep. I agree there and relate to it. So you mentioned your father. How would you characterize your father as a man? Was he tough on you? Did he ever show you love? Did he ever discuss his feelings or emotions? Did he ever talk to you about the important things about being a man? Yeah, this is uh, interesting because uh, I am a child of the, the 70s and the 80s. Um, so I, I didn't have one father, but two, right? So I, I had my biological father who was very much, my parents were divorced either, you know, one year before, or one year after I was born, not exactly sure, but I, I never, my parents were never together from what I remember. Um, but then when I was about seven years old, my mother married my stepfather. Um, and so I had two father influences in my life. Um, and, and they were almost diametrically opposed. Um, my father was for me, to me, a, a very loving individual. I always say that I, I learned my my caring and my graciousness from my father, and I learned my discipline from my mother. And it's usually the other way around for a lot of people. Um I can't think of a time, you know, honestly, there's only one time where my father ever spanked me. And ironically, it was for something I didn't do. But my father was never a, a significant disciplinarian. He was always one that um, 
really showed a lot of affection and gave a lot of, of support and encouraged in, in things like that. Um, and so that was all affection without discipline. My stepfather, on the other hand, was the opposite. All the discipline and, and, and really to the level of, and, and not as much physical abuse, understanding that if we were to describe things that happened in the seventies, it would sound like abuse today, but that's what punishment quote unquote was. Um, but yet very, um, a, a lot of, uh, psychological abuse, you know, I couldn't do anything right kind of things. Uh, my stepfather was a, a very hard man. He was a, um, a strong man. He had actually lost his, he was disabled. So he'd lost his arm at a young age, but you could never tell, like it, it never slowed him down. He was a master craftsman. He could rebuild, um, you know, heating and air conditioning systems and carpentry and, and automobile, but, but he never shared any of that with me. It was always, I, I was always separate. So I had a, a very loving and caring biological father, but at the same time, he was not, um, uh, he was shoving stuff up, stuff up his nose and pouring stuff down his throat, right? So this is that Vietnam sort of impact in the 70s and 80s. Um, and so for a long time, I really idealized my father and all his good qualities and minimized his bad qualities and despised, literally, in many ways, my stepfather, um, maximizing his negative qualities while honestly, I, you know, minimizing his his good qualities. Uh, and I think over time, as I've grown uh, older, and, and again, part of this is through therapy, uh, I begin to realize that I was raised by two men. Uh, both of them were flawed. Both of them um, did the best that they could. Neither of them were doing really great job. Um, uh, for a long time, I, I held a lot of animosity towards my stepfather. Um, but I also recognized that the difficulty that I had during my childhood actually made things easier in the army. Like all you need me to do is show up on time and do what I'm supposed to do. And be, I've been doing that for the last 12 years. So there's, you know, this is, this is easy for me. Um, so I, I, I think that really both of them were um, more of uh, demonstrative. Um, I can't really remember times when my father said, you know, this is how to be a man. Uh, I definitely know that there wasn't that for my stepfather. It was this, you know, be good to your children, provide for your family kind of thing. Um, but I think for me, just that combination of affection without discipline and discipline without affection in two father figures, that was significant for me growing up. Great. Well, let me try and uh, integrate that with masculinity norms. Mm-hmm. Um you know, today, today, and and in the past, men have been influenced by their fathers and the media of being this egotistical macho man who can handle everything and doesn't need help. And if he asks for help, it's a sign of weakness, or he might be characterized as feminized and not a real man. Um, thinking about not only yourself, but also your, your stepfather and your father, do you think that have, may have prevented any of you to come forward and ask for help? You know, I, I think that in, if we talk about things that are transmitted generationally, so looking at my father specifically, his father, my grandfather, 
um, was a, a significant alcoholic. Um, uh, I never realized it growing up, you know, grandpa just smelled funny whenever you went to go, you know, <laughs> sit on his lap and, and until I got into a little bit of, of I didn't realize till later what that smell was in the morning. Um, and, and it was, you know, it, so I hadn't realized, I think as a young man, that my grandfather was a severe alcoholic. Um, but my father and all of my uncles, of course, grew up with that. Um, and so there is a genetic component to addiction. So it was transmitted from my grandfather to my father, some of my uncles, and even to a certain uh, period uh, early on in my military career to me. Um, but I also remember growing up, um, periods in which my father tried to address this, going to AA periods where he's, you know, he said, I'm going to stop, you know, the, the different um, uh, drugs and things like that. Um, and so I think from my father's side, who was really, again, at that point, my very idealized version of a parent, um, part of that was reach out for help if you need it, get the, you know, go get the treatment. Um, the, the challenge was, is that we would have periods of sobriety, but then, you know, of course he would relapse and you know, I'd be disappointed and, and, you know, it just would be sort of this combination. Um, but I think that um, it, it, seeing my grandfather who did not reach out for help, the, the story is, is that, that he, um, he, he actually died of an aneurysm in his early seventies and he was in a bar stool, right? And he, he died where he, where he lived, so to speak, was, was the choice. And I think, I don't even know the extent of the challenge of the relationship between my father and my grandfather. Um, I think my father's reaction to reaching out for help and seeking help was diametrically opposed to his grandfather's toxic masculinity, if we want to describe it as that. My father was the oldest of four boys. Um, he, he had three older sisters. He was the oldest and then the three boys below him. And so he was always the one growing up who was responsible. So he was responsible for his sisters and he was responsible for his younger brother. So if anyone did anything wrong in the family, it all fell on him. And so he had this, this idea of, you know, the, the weight of responsibility um, of himself. Um, and I think his, or I do know that his relationship with his father impacted how he saw me and how he treated me, which was diametrically opposed to the way he was treated. Okay, let me talk about abuse for a minute. I was abused physically, mentally, emotionally, and verbally growing up. And I didn't realize it until I got out of the, home, the house, went to college. And I found out later that that was the root of my condition. A severe, I have severe depressive disorder that's reoccurring. And which drove my addictions that, thank God, I've overcome with the help of support and doctors. Was there any evidence of any kind of abuse in your family when you grew up? You know, one of the things that we're understanding now in the clinical mental health field is, is the prevalence of adverse childhood experiences. And so um, there's a, a fairly famous study called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey, which indicates that the more adverse childhood experiences you had growing up, the, the worse outcomes are for you later in life. And these are things like, and I don't have them in front of me, but things like um, substance abuse in the home, obviously physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, parent being incarcerated, 
Um, and, and growing up, um, I, I have a very early memory of, so my father was a, a he was a Vietnam veteran and he was a correctional officer when he was in the army. He got out, he was St. Louis city cop. Um, he worked in security, uh, law enforcement security for a large portion of his life and in my life growing up. Uh, but one of my earliest memories is going to the local police station in which he was arrested in front of me. I was probably six years old and probably looking back, the reason why he brought me there was hoping that he wouldn't get arrested in front of his son kind of thing. Right. And, and so in, in, again, it goes back to this. I had this really high idealized um, uh, image of him and he was not perfect by any definition of, of, of what perfection could be, uh, you know, justice involved again. And I said, substance use. Um, and, and so there was definitely on that aspect, I was exposed to a lot of that growing up. Um, on on my, my father's side or my stepfather's side, really, um, again, it's this idea of um, what would be termed abuse today. I would say that uh, being like, again, my father was a craftsman. My stepfather was a craftsman. Um, and so he actually carved a wooden two by four and sanded it and, and stained it and like put some actual work into it as a paddle and, and made a paddle so that, um, you know, when I would need to be disciplined and I would be spanked with this, this hunk of two by four that had a handle and formed his, you know, and so, and again, um, he only had one arm. And so the one arm that he did have was a very strong and massive arm. We know that that happens. Um, and so um, when I was young, I was physically spanked significantly. Um, and, and then even later, um, and again, this, this idea of, of the complicated family, um, you know, in, in, my mother was, a. I think a lot of the discipline that came from my mother was her attempt to keep me from turning into my father. So there was a lot of, a lot of rules and a lot of rules that were able to be broken. Um, and then growing up, there was a lot of things like just feeling not adequate, feeling not good enough, um, you know, to the point of anything that I did, um, whether loading the dishwasher incorrectly or um, eating something out of the refrigerator that wasn't supposed to be eaten, um, you know, I got in trouble. I was grounded or I was screamed at or I was yelled at or things like that. Um, I do think looking back that that I did, I, I was depressed. Um, I did experience depression for a large portion of my um, uh, my teenage life. Um, my, my, we grew up in St. Louis. We grew up in, in, in central St. Louis, but then moved to South County. Um, my father was not a very, um, he was a racist. He was, uh, bigoted. Um, uh, my father, and this is so my, um, my father's mother was Mexican and my, my grandfather, his father was Caucasian. Um, and so, um, I wasn't all white kind of thing. Right. And so it was really a, a, a very different experience between my stepbrother, who was my father's son and my half sister, who was his daughter. Um, and then myself and my sister. So there was a lot of, I think, psychological abuse as I became a, a teenager later in life uh, or later in my childhood. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say neglect. We were all taken care of. Um, but my family was a blue collar family that moved into a higher socioeconomic neighborhood where I recognized that I didn't have the nice cars and everything else that everybody else around me. So I, I do think that 
Um, while my childhood by no stretch of the imagination um, was the worst one that was out there, um, I, I think that there are a number, I do recognize there are a number of um, adverse childhood experiences that, uh, that I put up with as a kid. Now, in, in my research, I found that unchecked depression can manifest into risky behavior. Did you ever display any risky behavior as a child growing up? Alcohol, drugs, pills, stealing, fighting others, violence, things like that? I, I think that I had a lot of anger, or I know that I had a lot of anger as a child. That's where a lot of my, my behavior manifested. Uh, but again, um, it was very, very clear to me that those kind of things weren't acceptable as far as the substance use. Um, there were definitely... Um, you know, I, I prided myself and, and honestly, um, it, it certain times was taken advantage of by my friends um, uh, that I was, you know, I, I was a pretty good shoplifter, right? It's not like I made a habit of it, but it was things that, you know, was something that I was actually kind of uh, good at and, and, and engaged in that. And it really, though, wasn't until I left um, my family. And so I joined the army and, and I was in Germany. Um, and so Germany as a 19 year old, single 19 year old um, that has a history of alcoholism in their family um, isn't always the best place. And so it was sort of like a match meet flame. Uh, and I can honestly look back on uh, that period of my life, those three years where I was a functioning alcoholic, drinking, you know, six going out drinking six nights out of seven, the seventh night we, was our sort of quote unquote night off where we just stayed in the barracks and drank. Um, and so it, it was, you know, like I, I deliberately did not get a driver's license, a civilian driver's license in Germany. So I would never have to be the designated driver so I could drink. I mean, it was again, um, blackout drinking, things like that. Some of that carried over to uh, my second, um, uh, my second stint, uh, when I got to uh, Fort Bragg in the 82nd Everett Division. But, but then I realized that that behavior was going to jeopardize my military career. Um, and there were several incidents in which um, it, it got close enough where if I would have continued to engage in that behavior, um, an old sergeant major of mine says every once in a while, a donkey needs an ax handle between the eyes to get its attention. <laughs> um, I think he was talking about me when he was telling that story, but very specifically um, there were a couple of incidents uh, in the 82nd Airborne Division where I realized that if I continued, really my drinking behavior at that point, if I continued this, my military career, which I valued very much at that time, would really be in jeopardy. And so there was a period of time where I stopped drinking um, for about uh, six to eight months. And then afterwards, I've been able to, of course, control my drinking and not not uh, not let it get out of hand. Um, but that's really, I think, where a lot of that manifestation was um, of the genetic predisposition to uh, substance use, alcoholism specifically, and then being in a very permissive environment um, in which a lot of the restrictions I had as a kid were lifted. In, in, uh, you said you had depression. Mm -hmm. And in light of healthy masculinity and asking for help. Um, when you knew you had depression, did you do anything about it? Did you keep it to yourself? Did you seek some help? How did you handle that? 
I, I think as a kid, I, I remember one time where I told my mom, you know, hey, I'd, I'd like to go see somebody. And she was like, well, that's not what we do here. So that's not going to happen. Right. You know, so there are, that's, you know, number one, and, you know, you think we got enough money to send you to a doctor, you know, suck it up and drive on kind of <laughs> something like that is. Um, <clears throat> and then um, after leaving my family and getting into the military and, and all of the heartbreaks that go along with being a 19-year-old kid and stuff like that. Um, the way I managed it then was uh, obviously with alcohol. And so I was addressing that. Um, I, I think that there were periods of time where it had gotten worse or better. But I, I married my wife in, in 1999. And I think uh, for the latter third, let's say, or, or three quarters of my career, um, whatever it was there, it was, it was papered over by the anger, right? You know, I was a leader in the army. I was a platoon sergeant. I was a first sergeant. Um, you know, I, I didn't have time for that. And it was really more driven by the mission um, and going 90 miles an hour. It's sort of like, you know, everybody else around me screwed up. So I don't realize I'm screwed up. A fish doesn't know it's wet whenever there's just a bunch of other fish running around. Um, and so I think it really wasn't, again, until after I got out of the military, I realized I'm, 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 I'm t doing these clinical, I, I recognized it, right? I mean, I, my, I, in intro to psych class, uh, my first paper was on being the adult child of an alcoholic, right? So I recognized what all this was. I, I saw all the signs and symptoms, uh, but it wasn't, I think, until I got out of the military that I really did what I needed to do to address it. Great. Okay, so you have children. Mm -hmm. How do you think you would characterize yourself as a father? Easy, tough, lose your cool, yell and scream. You show your soft side, love and emotions. How do you handle that? Yeah, again, I think this is a matter of, of you know, when in someone's lives we're talking about this, right? Um, or, or maybe we should get my wife to come on here and ask what the, the external perspective is. Um, but obviously, I think that when I was in the military, um, that was a lot of my focus. Of course, I was there for my children. Um, I came from a, a divorced family with, with challenges. Uh, my wife, for her um, part, um, she didn't come from a broken family, but her father was a severe alcoholic. And so we sort of had that shader experience. And early on, we decided that we're not going to raise our kids the way we were raised, much the way that my father broke the chain of abuse, uh, very specifically from his father to me and my sister, um, that we decided to break that chain um, to our children. And so um, I, I do show or I have shown affection. Again, it's sort of that idea of that's one of the things I picked up from my father. Um, obviously, also, um, my wife and I are the, you know, we co-discipline. Um, but I, I think, you know, knock on wood, um, that, that we've done our best. But really, it's we're doing our best in order to um, raise our children in opposite of how both she and I were raised. Great. Okay. One other quote, audacity is the key to victory in battle. Can you explain that to our listeners? Sure. So this is, uh, this is actually, it's from a book that was quoting another book. Um, but there's a, a very good book about the early days of the Afghanistan war and it's called not a, um, not a good day to die. And it's really talking about the, the early special operations uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, and one of the generals there would often quote uh, Patton as saying, there are three keys to the battle, uh, audacity, audacity, audacity. Um, mm -hmm. And 
And for me, um, that had become sort of a mantra of mine. Um, the word audacity, some people's like, how dare you? But, but I use the word audacity as in bold and decisive action. And so really an expansion on that audacity is a key to victory or victory in battle. Bold and decisive action, more often than not, will bring about a result that we desire, provided that's not limited by somebody else's authority, right? So we need to make sure that we're not engaging in bold and decisive action um, in, in, in violation of someone else's rights or in violation of the rules. Um, but for example, that, you know, me sitting there in the, the Colorado State Capitol um, a year after I retired from the military, what do I know about sitting in front of some local lawmakers and stuff like that? That was a pretty bold move on my part, right? It was a risky move on my part. I, I took a step out there um, because I was passionate and I was, I was talking specifically about mental health and wellness. Um, taking the bold step of not continuing on my military career but the, what I did in the military, I could have gone out and ran a warehouse somewhere or dispatched, a, a, you know, being a dispatcher for a vehicle fleet or something like that. A lot of my colleagues did that and, and they're perfectly happy, but I didn't want to do that. I took a bold and risky step to go into a different career field. Uh, you're writing a book. That's a bold move, right? It's a bold and <laughs> in, in putting ourselves out there. These are, these are bold, audacious and risky um, they, they have greater risk than just sort of keeping this to ourselves. But a lot of people don't realize that more often than not, bold moves will actually turn out well. They just feel like the risk is better than whatever the return will be. So I think that in many different ways, whether it's the podcasts that I have or the, um, uh, the legislative advocacy work that I do, the books that I've written, my conversation here with you, right? It's all a matter of um, taking bold and decisive action um, within the proper framework, again, not violating anything. Uh, that's really, I think, one of the things that can lead to a lot of success for you. We just landed one of the, the, the um, NASA yesterday just landed a, a, a huge rover on Mars, right? And they've been planning this, the perseverance. Um, that happened because somebody somewhere said, hey, what if we do this? That was a bold and decisive choice, to be able to say that and then to be able to make that bold and decisive act. It's how we got to the moon. It's how we're going to get to Mars. It's how we're going to solve all of the, the social ills is through bold and decisive action, just through audacity. Okay, one last question that I'm going to take a crack at as well as you. Personally, how do you describe masculinity? You know, um, I think for me, uh, again, um, with the experience of the men in my life, um, I experienced a level or I saw what toxic masculinity was for my stepfather, right? You know, this very cold and distant, um, uh, judgmental uh, disciplinarian and having an aversion to that is what sort of drew me to more of the non-standard, uh, the loving father, the caring individual. Um, and I think masculinity can be whatever we define it as. It is the, the male nature. Um, and masculinity is described in different cultures. Um, again, my, my grandmother was, uh, it, it was, passed away when I was 12 or 13. 
uh, she was Mexican. So the Hispanic culture has a different description of masculinity than those that weren't raised in Hispanic cultures. Uh, and so I think that there are a lot of um, uh, cultural aspects to it. Um, I would like to say that, that maybe my version of masculinity is, is being able to provide for your family, uh, be a strong and caring father, um, while ensuring that your children are growing up um, uh, people of value and, and have um, uh, consistent and appropriate ways of thinking. Um, but I also recognize that that's not the first definition that comes to mind when most people think about masculinity. Yeah. All right. Briefly, here's how I look at it. Masculinity to me is, is a three-sided triangle. And on one side, I label it Clint for Clint Eastwood being the big, strong guy. And that means not only being able to lift heavy objects, a piano down the stairs, but also willing to have a tough discussion with a member of your family, your wife, your daughter, somebody at work. And you know that the truth must be be talked about, but it, it might it might hurt the other person. But you know, it's very important that it be said. The other side of the triangle I call curly for the three stooges, meaning that guys have to have a, a sense of humor, that they can't take life so seriously all the time, that you know, life is to be enjoyed, and we don't have to go around being dour and, you know, so stiff all the time. And the third side of that triangle I call Gandhi, which represents that I believe every man should have some type of spiritual connection, however he perceives it, something that he can connect with that will ground him that will allow him to, you know, take a deeper look and, and a bigger look at, at what, what things are really about. And if a man has all sides of that triangle handled, I think that he's a masculine man. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that in, in hearing you. Um, it's strength, wisdom, and humor. Um, you know, if we have strength without wisdom, um, then that's brutality, right? If we have strength and wisdom without humor, that's sort of that, that dour, you know, that, that unpleasant, you know, that, that bitter taste in the mouth. So um, I appreciate having that balance. And that's really, when it comes to, when I look at mental health, it all is about balance, but in balancing that strength, wisdom, and humor together, I agree. I appreciate that definition. Okay. Well, as everybody can see, Dwayne's story is quite remarkable. You've demonstrated courage, bravery, and giving to your community, a true role model for our world today. We're honored to have you on our podcast today. Do you have any final thoughts? Uh, really, just to say I appreciate um, the, the radical honesty that it takes for you and the courage that it takes for you um, to be able to even do this, right? You know, having a podcast 
having a podcast 10 years ago might not have been a thing anyway, but if it was, it might not have been about mental health. It might not have been about explorations of ma uh, masculinity and, and the impact of mental health and suicide and things like that. And so I just really encourage people to um, understand that having these uncomfortable conversations doesn't mean we shouldn't have them. It means that we should have them more. And I appreciate you for doing it. Absolutely. Well, I look forward to continuing our dialogue moving forward so I can learn more from you so I can help others. Thanks again, Dwayne. Listeners, please look up out for the podcast, Time Out for Mental Health, wherever you get your podcasts, including the Mental Health News Radio Network and HealthyLife.net. And keep your eyes out for my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a book about relationships, depression, suicide, and how toxic masculinity affects relationships between men and women. Please contact me for public speaking engagements as well through my website, timcrass.com. And don't forget, have fun, everybody. <laughs>